This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer, benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. A famously private federal judge didn't want a memorial after his death, but weeks before he died in May, Judge Richard Meech had finished a series of interviews with retired bankruptcy judge Bruce Campbell for an oral history. The 240-page transcript is a remarkably thorough record of Meech's early life, career, and judicial philosophies given his reclusive and unapproachable reputation. The oral history is part of a renewed effort by the Tenth Circuit Historical Society to document the careers of well-known judges within the circuit's six states, including on the federal district courts. Although Campbell didn't know at the outset how much Meech would open up, the transcript from their interview sessions are a window into the Historical Society's goals for the oral histories. Campbell talked with Meech about the best-known parts of his career, including the Oklahoma City bombing trials and his reputation for his quick temper. Outside the courtroom, Meech was notoriously private, believing judges have a duty to draw a strict line between their professional and personal lives. He didn't socialize with lawyers or even other judges. But his sessions with Campbell revealed just how much Meech's public persona belied a complex personality. Lawyers knew Meech for his quick temper in court, but for more than 40 years he regretted something disparaging he said to a lawyer early in his judicial career. He worked hard to conceal his emotions, calling it part of the discipline of a judge's role as a neutral arbiter, but the characterization of him as unemotional troubled him. I sat down with Campbell to talk about the historical society's oral histories and the time he spent with Meech. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. I understand the the Tenth Circuit has done oral histories of judges for a lot of years, but for a long time were done pretty informally, and it was within, I think you said, the last year or year and a half or so that the Historical Society decided to revamp the oral history efforts to give them some more cohesion. So just tell me a little bit about that kind of before and after history. Well, the the effort in the area of oral histories actually predates the Historical Society itself. Uh, the Historical Society wasn't formally uh, constituted until, I think it was 2001 or 2002, when a Colorado nonprofit corporation was put together and became the Historical Society. Prior to that time, the Tenth Circuit Conference, uh, governing body of the of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, had a committee uh, that it called the History Committee, which was led by one of its members, uh, Judge James Logan. But there were, for the better part of two decades, sort of randomly, the the judges on the on the Court of Appeals would would uh, do some oral histories, although they were very unstructured. I mean, and sometimes it was uh, two or three of these judges sitting down together, uh, you know, and spending an afternoon interviewing each other and taping it. There was very little structure and very little uniformity to what was done. We have, we have located, or at least identified would be a, a better description, about 15 interviews of, of uh, mostly circuit court judges, 10th Circuit judges, who sit in the six states of the 10th Circuit. We, we decided the first step wasn't going to be to track down what we had and, and be sure of just what that was. 
but instead the most immediate concern, and it was largely because uh, uh, we're talking about oral histories of, of uh, people of advanced age and uh, people who may not uh, be physically or mentally able to participate uh, for too many more years. And so our our focus has been identifying the leading judges in the circuit, trying to get uh, oral histories uh, of those uh, folks while they're still with us. Efforts as extensive as these oral histories necessitate a skilled interviewer, whoever that ends up being. So what makes a good interviewer to coax these judges to open up? The critical thing is a, is a willing an interesting subject, but that isn't enough. The, the interviewer either needs to be very familiar with the subject, and even if that's the case, needs to be willing to do some real preparation. I mean, you can't sit down with these folks who are used to being pretty isolated from, from uh, public life and say, tell me about your life. Presumably, your interviewer knows something about the subject, uh, or you wouldn't have trying to recruit them to start with, but but to sit down with the subject and go over things about their growing up, their education, their work before judging, uh, their judicial philosophies, ideas about the past and the future of the bar and the bench, these kinds of things, to talk with the subject beforehand. Uh, and then... Once you've got some idea of where the subject's coming from on these things, to go do some research, a lot of it. And the more the better because, because it enables you to not so much direct, uh, although you want to have some control over the direction of where this is going, but to be able to react and, and take it in interesting directions and be responsive to the subject. But in any event, sometimes these oral history interviews of these uh, jurists of advanced age, they allow themselves to, uh, particularly those who aren't uh, with an active docket, uh, to talk about their thoughts on, on the profession of judging. Uh, and, um, and so sometimes... Uh, you get them talking about their judicial philosophies, their worldview, their interests, their backgrounds in ways that it would be very unlikely to, to broach those subjects otherwise. So I want to talk about the series of interviews you did with Judge Richard Meech in fall 2018. People who aren't lawyers or judges or people outside Colorado would have heard of him as the judge in the Oklahoma City bombing trials. And his oral history seems about as ideal as you could hope for. You know, your hours of interviews with him turned into a transcript hundreds of pages long. And from what I think you've told me, he didn't ask you to exclude virtually any part of your conversations from the final product. And that's all in the context of Judge Mache's tendency for remaining extremely private throughout his career. So in your interviews with Judge Mache, the two of you talked about everything from the Oklahoma City bombing trials to a comment he made to a lawyer like four and a half decades ago, a mean comment about the lawyer's case he said he still felt guilty about saying. And so at the outset of these sessions with him, is there anything you remember thinking or wondering that he might not be willing to talk about? I didn't have to wonder. 
is part of the the ground rules. And and I, as I say, I was I was mightily intimidated when I got a call saying. The, the good news is that Dick Mage will sit for an oral history. For you, the bad news is you're going to do it. That, uh, and which, which terrified me. But I started by sitting down with him, and he turned out was extremely willing. And he would not sit down with lawyers or judges under almost any circumstances. But it became apparent that that. Uh, I had been retired about three years from the bench when this started, and um, he clearly was not viewing me as a lawyer who he knew from years of practice before him, or as a judge who was across the street at the bankruptcy court. It was it was a, as an amateur historian, I guess. But he said, and these were his words: "Is is the only rule is." Don't think you're going to get the backstory on any of my cases. His word, backstory. I'm not quite sure what a backstory. Is. I was going to ask you what he meant by that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not sure what he said, but I said I'll tell you this. I said that that I I have no intention of of asking you, nor would I expect you, to talk about the facts or the law. But it was also there was a fine line to deal with, judges periodically deal at the confluence of burning social issues that are politically charged, and yet their job description is political independence. And you don't have to look very far. You can go to this morning's paper or yesterday's or, uh, or this session of the Supreme Court. Um, illustrate illustrates that well and certainly over Judge Mage's career, there were many examples of of the confluence of burning social, politically charged issues and the courtroom, the trial courtroom. And so I said to him, well, well, I don't want any backstory about the law or the facts in any of the cases that you've handled. I can think of nobody who, because you've handled Cases like the Oklahoma City bombing trial, cases like the the Denver School Board, uh, the busing desegregation cases, cases like some some very important civil rights cases. Uh, I said to him, the dynamics of being in political isolation and dealing at the confluence of burning social political issues. In the context of a trial, your insights on those are terribly valuable, and and uh, he seemed to have no difficulty with that with that distinction, and seemed to trust me at least enough to let me try. And so the two of you talk quite a bit about the Oklahoma City bombing trials, and there has been so much written and talked about comparing the tone he set for that trial with. Judge Lance Ito's handling of O.J. Simpson's trial, which just turned into this very lurid media circus. And by contrast, Judge Meech took a lot of care to prevent the publicity from affecting the fairness of Timothy McVeigh's trial. And you asked him whether at the time he felt any pressure that in the court of public opinion, the trial process was itself on trial because what had happened with the Simpson trial and I think also with the police officers who had beaten Rodney King, that was another trial. And 
Meech said no, that he just took it in stride as part of his role as a steward of due process. Did you believe him when he said he didn't really think about the pressure? It was another day at the office. And if anybody could pull that off, it was him because nobody was going to take him on on that. But that was his mindset. We're going to do this in the fashion that, that how I conduct my courtroom and, and my play by the same rules I always play by. It's that simple. And, and now this was from his perspective. Obviously, the press and the public had a, a little more interest than your routine D. UI. But he was in charge, and there's never was ever a question of who was in charge in, in uh, Dick Mage's courtroom. Uh, and it was going to run like any other trial, notwithstanding the fact that there were sharpshooters on the tops of the buildings around and people lined up for blocks. But he tried it like he tried every case, which was straight down the line, and no nonsense. Uh, Due process is what it was all about. Campbell also asked Mache about his reputation for distancing himself socially from the rest of the legal community. He also didn't show much emotion on the bench about his cases. But as it turned out, Mache had a lot of thoughts about how emotion can swing a case and when testimony that's emotionally charged is relevant. As one example, he talked about wrestling with whether to allow testimony about children and babies in a daycare center near the Oklahoma Federal Building who were killed in the bombing. He decided that kind of testimony about the bomb's impact was relevant evidence about how it had been constructed. And he also believed victim testimony can have a place because it shows the consequences of criminal conduct. I raised with him his reputation of being so distant, and he was willing to talk about it. As it turns out, this wasn't just sort of happenstance or a personality quirk. This was a a conscious decision on his part, and certainly this isn't isn't common. He was pretty extreme on this, where he wouldn't uh, dine with lawyers or judges uh, or socialize with lawyers and judges uh, for the most part. But he he felt that that uh, and I mean I, I'm not speculating on this. He addressed it in order to be part of this independent, non-political role that the courts and the judge play. That he couldn't be identified with uh, lawyers and judges and political issues. Well, one thing that was quite interesting is he was openly critical of present Supreme Court justices who don't seem, at least in his mind, to share that concern about having a public presence uh, and somewhat be identified. And this wasn't a partisan kind of thing because the two Supreme Court justices that he picked on were, were Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia. So, I mean, he took a shot at either end of the court that uh, because he frowned on, and this didn't come from probing from yours truly, very open about this once I said, why are you, why are you so standoffish? Uh, is there a reason for that? That surprised me 
that he was willing to to talk as directly about that. And so I reeled off all these things about his his firmness and his brilliance and his hard work and and uh, that he could be hard on lawyers and and on and on. Uh, uh, and one of the things that uh, in, in my little laundry list, after which I said, now, what do you think of those? Are, are, are those accurate or unfair? One of the things that I, I, I said was that he was uh, a reputation of being unemotional. Well, that he he was really troubled by that and spent a, a good bit of time telling me how emotionally moved he was as a trial judge and gave me examples of a case. One was a, a, a beautiful young teenage uh, girl or woman who, who uh, had been, been paralyzed from the neck down. And it was a, a case that arose out of a terrible accident. Uh, and uh, a few other cases that he talked about. And, and, uh, you know this this fellow on the bench who everybody in front was terrified of. He explained there were times where he was holding back the tears. Well, who'd have thought? Uh, but the notion that he might be perceived as unemotional—he was almost hurt by that. That uh, he he so sincerely wanted it understood that he wasn't cold, but that was part of the job description. Uh, that that uh, that he was emotionally. I mean, he he couldn't help but agree that he didn't demonstrate much emotion from the bench, but but he wanted it known that it wasn't because he didn't feel it, and I believed every word he said. But that that surprised me. Moving on from the Oklahoma City trials. You told me something Judge Mage said about careers he would have wanted had he not picked a legal career. And I think you said he said like cowboy or journalist. And those two things are fascinating as alternatives to becoming a lawyer and, and then a judge. What did he say about why those careers appealed to him? He didn't talk much about, about why he wanted to be a cowboy. But he and his family lived on 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 a, a small ranch for most of his adult life here in Colorado. Mrs. Mache, who passed about a year and a half before he did, was very much involved with with uh, equestrian matters. Uh, the horsewoman, actually, I, I don't know much about it, but led a uh, some kind of charity that was uh, dealt with uh, uh, disabled children and and horses. And so, I mean, he'd been a, a, a gentleman, uh, hobby cowboy for his adult life. And um, his chambers had a lot of lot of cowboy art. There was something that that uh, he was enamored with the romance of of the American cowboy West. I know a little bit more uh, from the history of, about his interest in journalism. This is this was the fellow who was was the uh, editor of the high school newspaper and and uh, thought he was going to be a journalist and and uh, but was influenced by a customer at Mage's Market, which is was the family small business 
that uh, who was the who was a, a lawyer in the small town in uh, Iowa on the on the Mississippi River where he grew up, and uh, that. That lawyer, customer of the grocery store that the family owned, uh, somebody that that he came to admire, somebody he worked for as a as a uh, law clerk when he was in law school. But that person sort of directed him towards the law. I'm Julia Carty for Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. For more episodes of our monthly podcast. Follow us on SoundCloud or listen on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.